Um, I'm going to tell you a story about one of my neighbors. Uh, he lives in our neighborhood, and he's from Congo, and he's been in the States for about 15 years. Uh, and he really, his story begins uh, 20 years ago. And uh, 20 years ago, he um, lived with his mom, his dad, and he had three other brothers. And uh, his dad is a pastor, and his dad went away on a mission trip. And while his dad was gone, uh, the country of Congo uh, broke out into great political turmoil. Violence everywhere. And uh, so violent that his dad wasn't able to return home from his mission trip. So uh, he went to a, a neighboring country in Kenya and had asylum there. Meanwhile, uh, my friend, his three brothers, and his mother were in their home and not long after, it kind of broke out, and the, the, it wasn't safe for them to be home, so they went to a Catholic church in the community, and they hid out there with a bunch of other people uh, from the community. Uh, and things were increasingly more hostile on the outside. Uh, they were hostile because the mother and one of the sons uh, left one day to fetch water from the well, and uh, while they were gone, they were kidnapped. So the three boys were left there, 14, 11, and nine years old. And the priest eventually said, gosh, this isn't going to be safe for them even. So um, they were told, the, the boys were told, hey, I, I think your next, your next best bet is to traverse across 180 miles of rainforest to a town on the other side of the rainforest. That's your best chance. And so here these three boys take off, did 180 miles into the rainforest. They get to the other side, they find a safe town to be in, they've got a place where they can sleep, but they don't have any way of making money, so they beg, and they're out on the streets, and they're begging, and someone comes up to them and says, hey, I've, I've seen your picture, I've seen the picture of you, it's in this bulletin that I have from the Red Cross, and sure enough, the whole family was pictured there, and those three boys... And so they contacted the Red Cross, and somehow those three boys were able to reunite with their dad. If I were their dad, and I put that ad, more or less, into the Red Cross bulletin, I would have thought, man, I, there's hardly any chance that this is going to happen. And those boys, you had to think, when, they're going, when they, they've had all of this loss that has happened because of this violence, and they were trekked through the rainforest for 180 miles, they had to think, man, we're going to be good just to be alive, let alone ever see our dad again. But they were. They were reunited. They reunited back in Kenya. Not long after that, they came to the United States. That's a real story. <laughs> and it's a story that hits us right here, doesn't it? It's a reunion story. It's a story kind of like that we see in Taken. It's kind of like a story that we see in Finding Nemo. There is a vulnerable party. The boys, Nemo, the daughter... And there's a more powerful party who is in pursuit. Marlon, Liam Neeson, and the Congolese father. The vulnerable party's in danger. The more powerful party moves heaven and earth to reunite with their loved ones. And these stories resonate with us because they depict an image of our salvation that's come from God that he offers us. See, we're like the Congolese boys. We're like the captured daughter and taken. We're like Nemo, lost at sea. And God's the loving Father who's moving heaven and earth to protect us, to set us free, and to replace our lostness with a home. That's what we see in the gospel. The gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus tells this string of stories 
of things that were lost and then found. There's three stories in this string. There's one about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. We're going to look at the, the first one, the lost sheep. First seven verses of chapter 15 should be on the screen behind me. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The word of the Lord. Well, it's real important that we get the context right here, and that's what Luke does here in these first two verses. He's laying out the context, the historical moment. And what we see here are two very different groups of people. One group of people is made up of tax collectors and sinners, and the other group of people is made up of scribes and Pharisees. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, I hope there are some of you out there that means we're doing our job as a church, then you need to know what these four different types of folk are. Over here with the sinners and the tax collectors, the sinners are just people whose sin is very public. Their reputation is for being wild. They're the kind of people that people say under their breath, look at that sinner. Then you've got the tax collectors. Now when you think tax collectors, don't think IRS agents. That's not what they are here. I know you're probably not real fond of IRS agents, but at least, hopefully, they're not corrupt. Well, they were all corrupt in Jesus' day. Not only are they corrupt, but they were, they were people who defected from their own people. The tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were Jews themselves. And they were hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And they collected what they had to for Rome. And then they had a cut on top of that. And that's what they put their, in their wallets. So you can imagine how all the Jews felt about the tax collectors. They hated them. Sinners, tax collectors. Over here, you've got two other groups of folk you got scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, they're, they're both religious leaders. And they're known for their upright moral lives. They are righteous. And one of these groups, the tax collectors and the sinners, they love Jesus. You see that they love Jesus because the text says they come to him. And we know why they do because when they do come, Jesus receives them. And Jesus eats with them. And eating was seen as an extremely intimate exchange of relationship in the ancient Near East. And you can imagine, this really ticked off this, these folk over here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they treated tax collectors and sinners very different. They separated from them. They would have never ate a meal with them. In fact, the Pharisees had a rule that stated, Let not a man associate with the wicked not even to bring him to the law. Let me read that again. The Pharisees had a rule. Let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law. In other words, the Pharisees hated sinners and tax collectors so much they wouldn't even give them a Bible. Jesus couldn't get enough of these people. 
You see it in Luke. Luke chapter 7, you have a sexually suggestive woman dining with Jesus. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is eating a, a huge meal with a huge bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And now Jesus, in Luke 15, has to defend his involvement with the lost. And he does it by telling stories. And these stories where there's something's lost, someone goes and looks for it, and the person who goes and looks for it finds it. And when they find it, there's joy. All three stories follow that same pattern. The one we're going to look at is about sheep. There's a shepherd. The shepherd has a hundred sheep and only one of them leaves. And so the shepherd leaves the other 99 behind. Think about that just for just a second. Isn't that risky? I mean, what happens when the shepherd goes off, leaves a 99? What if a wolf comes and eats the rest of the 99, injures the rest of the 99. Someone comes along and steals the other 99. What position would that put the shepherd in? Well, the shepherd would be destitute. Maybe you look at it and you say, gosh, this shepherd's irresponsible. This shepherd is reckless. But you also look at the shepherd and you see that it's very costly. Sure, it's risky, but it's costly. He's going to lose sleep. He's going to lose a lot of energy because he's going to have to expend it as he travels the terrain. And this whole theme of cost and risk is something we've seen the last couple weeks. It's what we've seen in Camp Hope. We've called it Camp Hope because living outside is risky. It can be costly. The gear is costly and it's risky because you don't know what you're going to run into with the weather and with the wildlife. And we think this is an apt metaphor when we look at life in the church We would rather stay inside than go outside. It's easier to sit on committees, to take classes and do church things rather than engage with the outside world. And when we do, it's going to be costly and it's going to be risky. We talked about this with race. If you start dealing in matters of race, you might open up conversations where you get further accusation. You're going to have to know how to process that. When you open up issues of race, you might... It might affect your reputation as other people come after you. Then we talk about the poor. It's costly and it's risky there too. What if you get taken advantage of? And now we come to the whole issue of the lost, the skeptic, the de-churched, the unchurched, people with secular sensibilities. Now we have to think about costs and risk and assess it. Well, the first thing you got to know, if you're going to pursue secular focus, it's going to take years. One reason it's going to take years is because people are extraordinarily busy, so it's hard to get time with folks. Another reason it's going to take a long time is because it's going to take a long time to debunk their thoughts on what they think Christianity is. They've got a view of what Christianity is based on what they've seen in the news, based on what they've had in previous church experiences. And now here you come, you're the new church folk. You're the new Christian that they know, and they've already written you off. So it's going to take years. Costly. What's well, risky, too? I mean, Jesus didn't just hang out with them. We see in Luke 15 that these sinners weren't just Jesus' friends. These sinners repented. So what happens when you're hanging out with lost folk and they don't repent? You spend all this years building a relationship with them, and nothing happens. risky it's costly yet i think the joy that that, that it's worth it and it's because of the joy 
You see the joy happens in verse 4. When he finds a sheep, he rejoices. It wasn't just a relief. In fact, his joy is, is so intense he can't keep it to himself. He throws this huge party with his friends and his neighbors over one sheep. The party cost more to, to, to throw than the one sheep did for what it was worth. So think about it. When you think of joy, do you want more joy in your life? I hope you say yes. If you don't say yes, then I, I don't know if you've got a pulse. But if I were to give you 10 minutes and I said, hey, spread out, you go anywhere in this whole complex, you got 10 minutes by yourself and come back. And while you're gone during these 10 minutes, I want you to make a list. Five things that could happen in your life to give you more joy. What would they be? And be honest, (laughs) you know. And I bet a lot of those five things on folk lists would be, um, I'd like a raise. Because if I got a raise, I could do what I've been dreaming about with my house. If I got a raise, I could, I, could, I could save at an appropriate amount that would make me feel safe. Something about money, I think, would be on that for a lot of us. Maybe something around success. You know, certain promotion, certain accolades that they would take place. Then you would be really happy. Maybe something around comfort. If you could just have some time away from the kids, if you could just get a vacation, if your job, some some things on your job could just be taken off your job description, then you would be happy. Maybe you would be getting married. Maybe you'd be having kids. For me, it would be the Bengals winning the Super Bowl. We go on and on. But I bet very few of us on our top five list would put seeing sinners, skeptics, and unchurched people repent. We usually don't see that as the trick to cure our joy shortage. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. In verse 7, he said that all of heaven would rejoice at just one sinner who repents. The bottom line is, we would rejoice too. I mean, rejoice with radiant jubilee when we see the lost found. But what do we do instead? I think we're much more apt to hang back with the 99. We look at our own needs. We obsess over our own needs. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes did during their day. That's why they had such a big, respected reputation. Because their business was booming. These were people, the scribes and Pharisees were the experts on righteousness. And people out here wanted to know how they could be more righteous And so they just kept the loop going over and over and over again until Jesus broke it. I think it's tempting in our church. We spend our energy on ourselves over and over and over, and we put less and less energy on what's out there. We want people to serve us, help us, make us grow, and pour into us. And as we have that, and we see this Jesus go after those people, we begin to do just what the scribes and Pharisees did, and we murmur. Some of you may even be murmuring now. I found myself murmuring all week. I just thought, gosh, Jesus, I've got so much going on in my life. How do I have time? How do I have any energy for this whole endeavor that you're all about? But I need to be transparent. This seems impossible. (laughs) Having secular people come to faith seems like a fool's errand. Just want to give up on them. Seems like they're the ones who are so hostile to 
the Christian message. They quickly point out the damage the church has done. They go to the Crusades, talk about the Middle Ages, the, the, the Crusades in the Middle Ages. They talk about the church's complicity with their silence at the whole issue of race in America. They denounce Christians for being narrow-minded because of our insistence on Christ as the exclusive means of salvation. Secular people assume that science is opposed to the Christian faith. They think that Christianity is just a straitjacket. It's going to make your life miserable. There's questions about hell and how a good God could allow suffering and what is the Bible really all about. And not only do they have these kind of questions, they also need to have deconstructed what they think Christians are all about by the life you live. So you actually have to have some measure of holiness in front of them. It just seems a lot easier to stay inside. Hang out with your church friends and listen to sermons. It just seems easier to befriend sinners and never call them to repentance. It seems easier to grow, have our plan as a church to grow by hoping more PCA folks move to town. It seems easier to offer better preaching, which wouldn't be hard. Better music, which would be impossible. And better programs so that Christians from other churches would join our church. So what do we do? (laughs) How do we overcome our apathy? How do we overcome our exclusive focus on what we think we need? Look at verse 5. Look at what happens when the shepherd finds the sheep. Shepherd doesn't scold the sheep. Shepherd doesn't punish the sheep for running away. He bends down and tenderly places the sheep on his shoulders. And he rejoices in finding the lost sheep. You know how the sheep felt in that moment, don't you? Sheep felt delight. He felt a relief that he would no longer be lost. He feels celebrated because it's his discovery that becomes the cause for community-wide celebration. You, you know that moment happened for you once, don't you? Do you remember when Jesus found you? I, I know it might have seemed like, like you found Jesus, but Jesus found you. Maybe it was when you were a child, you woke up to the reality of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Maybe Jesus found you when you had hit rock bottom and no one was there for you except him. Maybe Jesus found you right after you blew it and you were convinced that you were worth nothing more than the sum of your mistakes. Do you remember when that happened for you? See, the glory of the gospel is that the good shepherd Jesus went a whole lot further than the shepherd we see in Luke 15. In Luke 15, he went on a hunt. But he didn't have to die to win his sheep back. But you and I, we were so lost that Jesus had to die to get us back. Jesus said as much in John 10. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know what that means. That means that Jesus must really love you. When his love hits your heart and you respond with joy, you're ready. 
you're ready to join Jesus in finding lost sheep yourself. Now, Jesus is going to do the heavy lifting. You're just going to be along for the ride. And you're going to be the religious folk who give up your separatistic ways to love sinners. See, here's my dream for our church. Our, my dream for our church is that whenever people come up here, you know, I don't really have the opportunity you know, to rat all you all out. Sometimes when you all stand up here and you're joining the church, you know I know your story. <laughs> and you're like, please don't tell everybody my story. And I'd never do that to you. But I know some of your all stories when you all get up here. You know, I, I don't do all the membership interviews, but I do a lot of them. And I know what's behind those vows. What's behind that, those vows for a lot of you is that someone was praying for you. Someone was spending time with you. Someone was inviting you to things where you met more folk in our church. Someone talked about Jesus in a very natural way on your back porch. And somewhere in there is when Jesus found you. And church, wouldn't it be a glorious thing? Wouldn't it be a joyful thing for us to rejoice every time that happened? I got people running through my mind. I can't think of anything much better than that. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this does seem impossible. <laughs> the people run through my head. I, I, it's just hard for me to imagine them even being in church. It's hard for me to imagine them um, repenting. It's hard for me to imagine them finding joy in the good news of the gospel. But Lord, that's why we pray. Uh, we, we, we were just that bad off too. We really were. And Lord, I pray you would remind us of such. And Lord, convince us where joy is really found. We pray these things in your name. Amen.